You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. Yeah, as I was thinking about this series and rethinking the church and making sure that we have God's picture, Jesus' design for the church, I was reminded of a time that we visited my in-laws, Keith and Cheryl, uh, back when they still lived in Virginia before they had moved here. And we were there visiting for the holidays for Christmas, and Haven was probably three or four, and she looked up at the phone that they had hanging on the wall in the kitchen, and she said, what is that? (laughs) And I said, that's a phone, and she was like, no, that's not a phone. Because in her mind, a phone looks like this, right? It's a small screen that dad and mom keep in their pocket and carry everywhere that they need to go. She couldn't fathom in her head that a phone used to be something that hung on the wall in the kitchen, and you had that really long cord so that you can take it to the living room, and it always got tangled. Because in her mind, what she'd always seen had been one thing. And seeing that older phone, it seemed completely different to her. And many people who have never been to church, picture church as something that they have imagined or they have feared it might be. And then there are other people who have just always pictured that church as they have experienced it when they went to church with their grandmother, that that's the way that church always has been in the church, the way that church will always be. And whatever camp you're in, whether you're not familiar with the church or at all, or you've been around church your whole life, all of us need to return to the scripture to find the design that God had for the church. We can't base it off of our imaginations or fear, and we can't base it off what we have experienced. We need to point back to what is it that God had intended or designed for the church to be. And this is important because the blueprints for the church are not in what we've experienced. They're they're in God's Word. The church that we are building, the design for it is found in God's Word. This is where we come not only for advice on life and how we should live and the decisions that we make, but also the way that we conduct ourselves and build this church and minister. They're found here. And this is specifically important for us as Faith Church because our mission is that we are building the church that our friends and neighbors will join and our children will lead And if we are constantly about this mission of building that church, building the church that we're going to welcome all of our friends and neighbors to come and know Jesus at, building the church that we're going to hand off to the kids who are in kids' ministry right now with all of our kids' ministry volunteers, we have to be building the right kind of church. Because we want to hand down to them something that is is worthy, something that is longstanding, something that is timeless. We don't want to just hand them down the church of our generation. We're going to hand them down the church of every generation. And last week, we talked about the fact that the church is a new kind of generation. There's no generation that has its unique claim on the church. And if you missed last week, I'd encourage you to to go and check out that message on our website and see how the church is to be a new kind of generation. Not the generation of the past or the generation of tomorrow, but a completely different kind of generation that all centers around the story of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us. Last week we looked at Acts chapter 2, today we're looking at Luke 5, both written by the same man, Luke, who's compiling the life story of Jesus and the birth of the church. And here in Luke chapter 5, we have another picture of what the church that Jesus started, what he wanted it to be, the heart of it. And so look with me at Luke chapter 5 and verse 27. And after these things, he went forth and saw a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, Follow me. And he left all and rose up and followed him. 
And Levi made him a great feast in his own house, and there was a great company of publicans and others that sat down with them. But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? And Jesus answering said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said unto him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? And likewise the disciples of the Pharisees, but thine eat and drink. He said unto them, Can you make the children of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. In my early days as pastor here at Faith Church, we were desperate to grow. And every church should have a passion to reach its community and to be growing because constantly new people are coming to know the message of Jesus. But we were desperate to grow because we were in a tight spot. We were in a spot where we had a, a congregation that had dwindled in a congregation that was older, no offense. Um, and it, it looked precarious because there were only a couple of children uh, in the church and several of the folks were nearing the end of their life entering, entering that grandparent phase. And there was this kind of this hanging question mark over are we going to see the church grow so that it can be handed down to a new generation, or is this going to be the final chapter? Maybe nobody would have put it in quite those explicit terms, but that's a pressure that I felt as the new pastor of this congregation. And so desperate for growth, I knew that we needed to constantly be reaching out to people and evangelizing the lost and trying to bring those that didn't know Jesus, who were far from God, into a relationship with Jesus. And so I preached on it all the time. And we developed programs that train people how to share the gospel with others. And we developed contacts and we, send, we sent people out to visit those contacts and to knock on their door and invite them to church and try to go through a program. And none of it worked. That was, that was difficult. It was hard. It was a very troubling period of, of, of years, my early leadership here as, as pastor. And it was important that we were to be evangelists. And it was important that we had trained people to know the gospel and be able to share it. But it wasn't producing fruit. It wasn't being effective. And at about that time, I read something that was, was so powerful and was a pivotal moment for me. And it said, evangelism is the outgrowth of an abundant life in Christ. And that moment was pivotal because I recognized in that moment that the very best way for us to be witnesses of Christ is not for us to be trained and armed, those are good things, and then to go out and find people, to, but to rather experience the, the love of Jesus Christ, the grace of Jesus Christ powerfully in our own hearts and in our own midst, and then that would become like a, a, a virus that just spread. It would, be just, it would just pour out of us. It would catch I also realized that worship was an overflow of an abundant life in Christ. And so this, this propensity, this, this move, this, this natural desire to share the gospel with other people and to invite them to come and know Jesus, and this, this move to, to worship God, to gather with his people, and to give him praise, they both happen not because we pushed them to happen or we pulled people to do it, but rather it happened naturally because they were experiencing life in Christ and that was just the natural byproduct, as natural as it would be for an apple tree to produce apples or an orange tree to produce oranges. 
And the com- combination of those two things, evangelism and worship, the, the product, the outgrowth of an abundant life in Christ, that's what church is. And so church is the, the overflow of an abundant life in Christ. And that's exactly what we see happen in this passage of Scripture. Matthew throws a banquet for Jesus after he's had this life-changing experience with Jesus. When Matthew experiences Jesus' love and grace, his immediate reaction is to bring all of his friends together so that they can meet Jesus. You see, Matthew never would have done this if if he hadn't come to know Jesus. He would have never thrown a party for Jesus if he'd not come to know Jesus. Not come to know Jesus if Jesus hadn't come to his table and called him. And church will not make sense to us, and it will not be something we can fully appreciate if we're not experiencing life with Christ. But when we're experiencing Christ's work in our hearts and lives, we're following him day by day, and he's making this profound difference in who we are. He's giving us joy in difficult times. He's helping us see the parts of us that are broken that need to be restored. We'll gather together on Sundays just overflowing with joy and praise and gratitude for what God is doing in our lives, and it'll just diffuse out of us when we're around other people. It'll be this overflow of an abundant life with Christ. And so whereas evangelism was something that I was constantly trying to make happen, it's something you can't stop from happening when we're experiencing abundant life with Christ. And when we appreciate and understand this experience of Jesus, we can appreciate and understand what church is all about. So let's look back at that moment that Jesus calls Levi. And Levi is Matthew's other name. And so the very first gospel in your New Testament is written by this guy who Jesus shows up at his table and says, will you follow me? And I want you to get a hold of the significance of this moment because when you hear that Matthew was a publican, that might not mean a whole lot to you. But publican was a derogatory term used by the religious for a specific class of sinner. And we have terms that we might use for a specific class of sinner today. People who are guilty of a specific set of sins or a specific gravity of sins. And that's how they referred to publicans. They were people who were constantly doing the public secular work of the Romans. Because tax collectors were people who collected the money for the Roman government who had conquered the Jews. And because of this, they were ceremonially, politically, and morally unclean. So what do you mean they weren't, they weren't clean? They were unclean. They hadn't showered? For the Jews, there was this classification of unclean that you could not come into the temple for worship. You couldn't gather with God's people if you were unclean. And you might be unclean because you had had a skin disease, you had leprosy that was highly infectious, you didn't need to be around other people. So it was kind of this health code, but it was also a holiness code. Because if you had participated in specific sins, you needed to receive forgiveness and go through a ceremonial cleansing of that sin before you could enter the temple and worship the Lord. Now, If you were someone who participated in sin, and if you were someone who had traveled from a Gentile or non-Jewish nation, you were considered unclean. And these publicans, by their very job, the nature of their job, were unclean. They were collecting money for the Roman government. So they were constantly interacting with people who were non-Jews and taking the money from Jewish people and giving it to non-Jews. That made them politically unclean. They were ceremony unclean because they were dealing with Gentiles and dealing with people who were outside of the temple covenants. 
And then lastly, they were morally unclean because it was a really standard and accepted practice that if what you owed was $6 in taxes, I would charge you 8 and keep the $2 for myself. And the Romans were totally fine with this because it made recruiting tax collectors really easy because it paid so well. And they still got their $6, so what did they care? And so it was common and it was accepted, but it was wrong. And so publicans were morally, politically, ceremonially unclean. They were outcasts. They were people that you didn't, you didn't affiliate yourself with if you were a religious person. And so for Jesus to walk up to a publican at his place of business, where he's conducting the very profession that makes him unclean, for Jesus to walk to him, up to him in that moment would be like a preacher walking up to a trap house and inviting the dealer to come and be a part of the church. It would be like a, a, a pastor walking up to a cat house and inviting the prostitutes to come and be a part of the church. That is the scenario here. And I'm not using language that's extreme. That is how people would have seen it. And so for Levi in this moment, for Matthew, when Jesus walks up to him, his eyes would have been as wide as saucers. And he was probably expecting, okay, I'm really about to get it. I'm going to get a righteous fire and brimstone speech about how awful and guilty I am. And Jesus says to him, follow me. Follow me. Now, to us, that might sound like, okay, Jesus is inviting him to become religious, but it's more than that. Because in that day, there were rabbis who would gather to, to themselves disciples or followers who would go with them. They would literally follow them from place to place to place. They would travel with them from Galilee out into Judea, travel with them out by the sea, walking from place to place, doing ministry, and spending all of this time together. What he's asking Matthew to do is come and be a part of my inner circle. Come and be a part of my group. Travel with me. Be one of my close followers and disciples. And this was a huge moment. And because of this moment, everything in Matthew's life changes. And Jesus didn't have to say a whole lot because Jesus was saying so much through his actions. Walking up to Matthew in this moment and saying just these two words communicated a whole lot. And Matthew was so moved that he immediately decides to stand up from his place of business, walk away from his table of collecting taxes. Most likely he was set up in a city gate as people made their way from one city to the other because you couldn't get into the city without going through the gate. That's where they would have, and it was basically like a fee to enter into the city and then a fee to leave the city, and we're going to make you pay for the amount of stuff you're bringing in or taking out. And he gets up from his table, this coveted spot, this excellent prime location, and he walks away from it in the middle of the business day. Why? Because Jesus had just made him an offer that he couldn't refuse. And so Matthew starts following Jesus, and they're spending time together every day. And, and I, I want you to get a hold of this. When I say we want you to follow Jesus, I don't mean that we want you to take on the label of Christian. Jesus was not asking Matthew, hey, Matthew, would you like to start calling yourself a Christian? He was saying, Matthew, would you like to spend time with me every day? You see, Matthew would not have understood being a Christian as a label that he took on, but rather it was something that he was constantly involved in, in spending time with Jesus constantly. 
And many times I'm afraid that we think of ourselves as Christians because we took on a label and it maybe was handed down to us by our parents or whoever, but that doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. Following Jesus is this constant state of being with Him, inviting Him into your life, and giving your life over to Him. And that's what Matthew does. And what we desire for our church is for everyone to follow Jesus, grow in a group, and serve on a team. And that's exactly what Matthew would spend the next three years doing. He follows Jesus every day, everywhere he goes. He's in a group of 12 disciples that are constantly spending time with Jesus. Jesus would give a message like like this to a big group of people, and then the 12 disciples would gather around and they'd debrief on it. And they'd ask Jesus questions about it, and he'd ask them questions about it. And at first they were serving in just simple ways by going and getting the food or lining up a place that they were going to stay that night. And then their responsibilities began to become greater, greater responsibilities of praying for people who came to see Jesus. And eventually they were being sent out to cities that Jesus wouldn't make it to and preaching the message. What had happened? He was following Jesus day by day. He was growing in this group of believers and he was serving in an increasing fashion on a team. And what happens in Matthew's life is what we want to happen and want to see happen in everybody here. To follow Jesus day by day to grow closer to him and experience the restoration and love and mercy and passion that you can find in him, the purpose that he will give you in a group of believers who are headed the same direction and to serve on a team because God has uniquely gifted you to make this huge difference. In this moment that Jesus walks up to Matthew and he leaves everything, Matthew would have known that he was doing what was wrong all along. But in this moment... Jesus doesn't walk up to him and say, what you're doing is wrong. And Matthew says, you know what? I haven't thought about it like that before. You're right. It is wrong. I'm going to stop doing it. No, he sees something else. What is it that he sees? He sees that Jesus loves him and is willing to accept him. And suddenly his affections are different. Mark Clark, who wrote that book that we focused on, The the Problem of God, that, that apologetic series that we did after Easter, I heard him talking one time about when he, when he first became a Christian, he was very rough around the edges, and he said, you know, my, my pastor was really pouring into me, and he was letting me, like, preach at the church. He said, I was probably too green for that. I wasn't ready for that. He said, I actually stood outside because I was so nervous about preaching and smoked my cigarette and finished it and, like, waved off the smoke and walked in and preached. He said, I was kind of just still trying to figure everything out. He said, and in that time of my life, I knew that I probably needed to stop smoking, and I was really struggling with it. And in Canada, they don't just have the Surgeon General's warning on it that says, like, hey, this is bad for you. They actually put pictures of a black lung on the front of the cigarettes. Or they might put a picture of a brain that's been affected by years of tobacco use. And he says, that didn't scare me at all. He said, I would walk into the gas station and say, yeah, I'll take a, a, a pack of the black lung and a pack of the bleeding brain. That didn't scare him. So what changed for him? What changed is that he met a woman... He fell in love with her. She would eventually become his wife. And you know what? She didn't like the smell of smoke. And suddenly, he quit. Why? Because his affections had changed. How, how did Matthew walk away from the, the seat of, of custom? How did he walk away from this, this prime spot, this, this incredibly well-paying job? How did he walk away from it at that moment? Because his affections in that moment were different. He loved Jesus, and he knew that Jesus loved him, and everything was going to be different from that point forward because of that love and that grace. Some of you, you're, you're desperately trying to change your life and you're trying to turn things around and you're trying to scare yourself and you're trying to psych yourself out. And let me just tell you, the thing that you need to do is just fall in love with Jesus. 
So, so Matthew sees it. He loves him, and this is changing everything about his life, and he doesn't know what all of it's going to look like yet. He wasn't ready for all of that, but here's the one thing that Matthew knew how to do. Matthew knew how to throw a party. So Matthew said, hey, let's, let's have a party. Verses 28 and 29 says, He left all, rose up, and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his own house. And there was a great company of publicans and others that sat down with them. Matthew throws a party for Jesus and a whole bunch of sinners and other publicans, because that's who Matthew hangs out with. They come and they sit down with the two of them at this party. And and I want you to first of all get that this is a party, but let me just zero in on the fact that this was a party for Jesus. And this was a really important distinction. This wasn't just a party that Jesus was invited to. This was the party for Jesus that all of Matthew's friends were invited to. And that subtle difference is big, okay? Matthew wants to celebrate Jesus, and he wants his friends to meet Jesus. This is all about Jesus. This wasn't a party for Matthew's friends. This was a party for Jesus that Matthew's friends were invited to. Church is a party where everyone is welcome. Everyone is invited, but it is about Jesus. It's about him. Matthew had just decided that he was going to walk away from everything to follow Jesus. Of course the party is going to be about Jesus and not about his friends. Because while Matthew still loved his friends, he loved them so much, he wanted them to meet this awesome Jesus who just changed his life. He was choosing Jesus over everything else. Over his profession. Jesus will talk later about how we have to be willing to forsake all to follow him. Some of you, you want, you want Jesus to be one of your friends, but you also have these other friends that you don't want to let go of. And your life is not about your friends. And your life is not about you. And Jesus is invited to be a part of the party. Our life, our church, our mission is to be about Jesus. And other people are invited along. Because this is about Jesus, and Jesus is the focus, there have been a really important distinction on what kind of party it was going to be. Matthew's friends probably showed up expecting a different party than the one they got to. Because this was not like the parties he's done in the past. We live in a consumer culture, and that pervades the church. And I've got to be honest with you, I am not interested in church shopping. So what's church shopping? Church shopping is when you say, we're going to go find a church that we just feel like really clicks for us. We're going to find a church that just kind of just everything that we like and it checks off all of the boxes for us. We're looking for a church that's, that's young, but not too trendy. Um, really good coffee, um, but we're on the South Beach diet, so there's going to need to be some communion options. And we like the small church feel, but we want the youth group to be like a rock concert so that our kids will come. Pastor me what translations... Uh, do you use, what songs do you sing? You sing the hymns, but not the really old hymns, right? Like just kind of the newer hymns. These are actual conversations that I have with people. Why? Because we're looking for something that fits all of our needs and meets all of our needs. And I'm glad that you were here and you are welcome here and I will do everything I can to make room for you here. But this is about Jesus. Because he's the one that's made all the difference in my life. I recently heard a guy talking about the history of rescue societies. 
Rescue societies were back in the day when, you know, the, we didn't have Coast Guard and, and we didn't have uh, the rescue uh, personnel that we have today. And so much of travel and commerce and shipping was done through ships. And basically the, the hubs of most cities were the ports and the harbors. And so whenever there was an accident or a ship was going down in the port or in the harbor or just outside of it, there'd be these rescue societies. And it was all the fishermen and all the people who owned boats that belonged to the rescue society. And they'd hear the bell. And like a volunteer fire department, they'd go get in their boats and they'd go rescue the people. They were a rescue society because that's what they did. They rescued people. And when they came back, after they'd rescued these people out of the sinking ship, out of the water, they'd have a party. They would celebrate because why not, right? You just saved people's lives. You should absolutely celebrate that. People are starting to notice these, these parties are awesome. These parties are really great. We should have these more often. I mean, why wait until there's a catastrophe to have a party? Let's have a party every month. So they started having the rescue parties even if there wasn't anybody to rescue. And people say, hey, I could, I could party and I don't have to rescue anybody. I want to be a part of that. You know what rescue societies became? They became yacht clubs. It's just people with boats who like to party. And I, I read up on the history of one of the oldest yacht clubs in America, and you know what? It split off of another yacht club because they had a disagreement about such and such. You know, of course they did. Because when you lose sight of the mission, you're not going to stay the course. When you no longer know why it is that you exist, you're not going to stick with it. And if for any moment we start to think that this party is about us or it's about our friends, we are missing the point because this is a rescue society. This is not a yacht club. We're going to party because we're rescuing people and Jesus is making a difference in lives. But that's what it's about. It's about Jesus. It's not about us. Parties are great if we know what we're celebrating. And what better to celebrate than Jesus, right? What better to celebrate than Jesus being rescued, being rescuing somebody, somebody's life being changed? We got people in here six months ago, they were strung out on meth and thinking about taking their own life. We got people that a year ago, you were in jail. That's something to celebrate. God's made a difference in their life. I remember back when I was still on the East Coast, somebody was talking to me about they didn't like the fact that the church that they were going to, that when somebody got baptized, people clapped. Like, for crying out loud, what else can we clap for if we can't clap for that? Somebody's life being changed. If there's anything for us to celebrate, it's that. And I don't think that we should give oh, some nice golf claps. Like, oh, that was a nice birdie. He got a part there. No, it's, this is amazing. God just pulled somebody out of the deep and saved their life. Problem is that we celebrate all the things that don't need to really be celebrated. And we are so passionate about the things that aren't that big of a deal. And is it any wonder that our children wonder what's really important to us when we celebrate our teens? We don't celebrate Jesus? I mean, can you imagine anybody that, that their grandparents from the rescue society and then they start going to the parties and they don't even remember that their grandparents risked their lives out in frigid waters in the harbors to save people? It's like, my, my grandparents were rich and they had a boat and we partied. That wasn't it at all. And God, help us if our kids ever grew up to think that this was a social club and we enjoyed getting together because we were friends. We are that, and we should celebrate, but we're celebrating something specific, saving people's lives, Jesus, rescuing people. That's what this is about. This was a party. Matthew threw a party. It was a banquet, but it was a banquet for Jesus. And the Pharisees didn't like it. Didn't feel very religious to them. 
And so they, they, they gripe and they complain. And God help us, may we never be too religious to celebrate what God is doing. Because that's where they were at. They could not celebrate. I'd originally worded that, don't get too religious to party, but some of you definitely need to get too religious to party. So the religious leaders criticized Jesus and the disciples, saying, your disciples never fast. The Pharisees fast, and the, the disciples of John the Baptist fast, but your disciples never fast. Why don't they fast? And Jesus says in verses 34 and 35, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is still with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. They loved a wedding in Jesus' day. Because weddings lasted seven days. A week. You think it's like overwhelming to plan your wedding now? I mean, imagine if it was a week-long celebration. Some of you dads, like me, are like, I'm thankful that my kid isn't getting married in that culture. I couldn't afford it. They'd party for seven days. And there were people in the Jewish religion that they would fast one day a week. They'd fast every Sabbath day or they'd fast. But when it was the wedding week, you didn't fast because it's the wedding week. And the bridegroom's still with us. We're still having this party. Nobody's abstaining because it's a feast and we're celebrating what's happening. And Jesus said, this is like the wedding week because I am here with them and I am bringing the kingdom and I'm bringing restoration and I am changing lives. Who could fast in a moment like this? This is a party. Jesus says to them, you're being like the person who at the party is like, um, is that gluten-free cake or is that... I'm like, no, just eat it. <laughs> Jesus says, as long as the bridegroom is with them, they will celebrate. But the day will come that he will no longer be with them, and then they will fast. And Jesus is referring to this time that we're in right now. And there's definite need in our lives for fasting and being serious and praying without ceasing. But can I tell you something? You know what the last thing Jesus said to the disciples was when he left? I will never leave you or forsake you. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. You know what this is? This is a party that don't stop. Because while Jesus was here with the disciples and they were celebrating and Jesus, he's still doing that today. He is still changing lives today. Right? Amen? Right? Is he? Right? Let's celebrate that Jesus is still changing lives today. And there are definitely moments that we need to fast and we need to pray and we need to be serious. But we should also be people of celebration. Because this is the Jesus party and the Jesus party doesn't stop. He is always with us. church is a party that never stops. And you know what the end of the church age is? It's the same as the end of our lives. It's heaven. And Jesus says, you guys haven't seen a party. Hey, we, we have mourned the loss of some people. They're partying. There's no, fe- there's no fasting, there's feasting. There's no weeping, there's celebrating. 
And when we come to know Christ, as Matthew did in this moment, there are definitely going to be days of difficulty in the future. There are going to be definitely going to be things that are hard. There are going to be times when we face trial and tribulation. But we have Jesus in our lives, and that is a party that does not end in this life or the next. Because we have got something worth celebrating. Jesus is saying this in the context of a party full of publicans and sinners, people that he knew that their lives were an absolute mess. And he would tell them that their life needed to change and be different. Jesus would elsewhere look on the crowds and be moved with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd, lost and wandering, hungering. Jesus was not oblivious to the fact that there was hurt and heartache all around him. But there was still reason to celebrate. And I want you to know that we can celebrate in the midst of heartache because the bridegroom is with us and he's still changing lives.